Well, I invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. The fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. While you're turning to Ephesians, would invite you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. We will read Ephesians chapter 4 and limit ourselves to one verse in verse 25. This is the Word of the living God. Therefore... Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, we have spent the last few weeks exploring what we have referred to as the city of man and the city of God. And we have highlighted the various features set forth in each one of those cities. Just to review, last week we saw three challenges that Paul the Apostle had for the residents of the city of God, which include each one of you if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 22, he, his advice, his challenge, his call to the people of God is to put off your old self. That is, stop living like a, a resident of the city of man. Verse 23, he said that our aim is to be for renewal. Our minds are to be renewed as residents of the city of God. Then finally, in verse 24, Paul gave this challenge to the Ephesian believers and also to you and I. That is to put on the new self. And so as we draw near the finish line at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, what we will find is that Paul the Apostle continues a series of admonitions to the Ephesian believers and to each of us. In the final eight verses of Ephesians chapter 4, we have a whole host of commandments, a whole host of imperatives that Paul sets forth for the believers in Ephesus. Now, I need to tell you that the basis of each of these imperatives is found in verse 25, where we will limit our, our, our message this morning. The basis for the imperatives is that they have done something very important, is that they have put away falsehood. It's exactly what verse 25 says. Therefore, having put away falsehood, so says Paul. Falsehood, you need to know, comes from a very interesting Greek word. It's the word that you have probably heard about that is also translated very similarly into English. It's the word pseudo. You're familiar with the word pseudo. Uh, the term simply means a lie. If something is pseudo, it is a lie. If something is pseudo, it's false. If, if, if it's pseudo, it's a statement that, that totally deviates or perverts the truth. So let me give you some examples. Some of you have run into from time to time what you may call a pseudo worker. How many, raise your hand. Have you ever met a pseudo worker? Yeah, yeah. You're not a worker. You need to get some work clothes on and you need to begin to use your hands and your feet and your mind and you need to work. This is one concern in a postmodern culture is we have many pseudo-workers. Another element of pseudo, you might call this person a pseudo-psychologist. Let me give you a, a, a little bit of, of pastoral counsel. 
If you ever meet a pseudo-psychologist, don't tell that person your problems. Right? Don't tell a pseudo-psychologist what you worry about because that person is a, a fake. That person is a sham. Or how about this one? If you watch a certain television show, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's called American Idol. It's a pseudo-singer. We have a whole group of pseudo-singers on American Idol. And you remember when that show first began several years ago that Simon Cowell, the, that crazy British fella, right? He would look someone in the eye and say, singing is not for you. And we said with a collective sigh, Simon, that is so mean. Why would you tell that poor girl she can't sing? And he would respond with that amazing British accent, because she can't sing. She's a pseudo singer. How about this one? How about a pseudo pastor? A person who has the credentials, a person who claims to have the experience, a person who claims to understand the Word of God, but this is a pseudo-pastor. This is a pastor who is a, a fraud, a pastor who is a fake. And may I tell you that we have many of those on the American landscape these days. We find the term pseudo sprinkled throughout the pages of the New Testament. I want to show you a couple of different places, and we'll put these on the screen for you to see. They're translated in various ways. First in Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven, we read, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, that is the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or pseudo or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I know you're very familiar with Paul's letter to the church in Rome. In Romans chapter 1, verse 25, Paul says that because these pagans exchanged the truth of God for a pseudo, for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Over in 1 John chapter 2, verse 21, John the Apostle says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no pseudo, no lie is of the truth. Finally, back in Revelation 22, verse 15, and pay close attention to this verse. It is, it is a powerful verse that we need to be well aware of. Outside, that is, outside of the, the city gates are the dogs and sorcerers and the, those who practice sexual immorality and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices pseudos. For everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, if you're wondering why in Ephesians 4.25, why I am laboring over this point, I want you this morning to not only see the destructive nature of pseudo, I want you to see the damning nature of pseudo. For the final destination of the person who loves and practices falsehood is hell. The final destination for anyone who practices falsehood is an eternity in hell. 
May I remind you that falsehood involves, but is not limited to what we have already discovered and what we have referred to as the city of man. In Ephesians four seventeen to 19, we learned about the essence of the pagan worldview. That these pagans have minds which are depraved. That they have affections which are also depraved. And the one that is so hard for, for the Western mindset to swallow is that their, their volition is depraved. That is, their wills are depraved. And so Paul implies here in Ephesians 4.25 that the Ephesian believers have learned a very, very important lesson. They have learned to put away this falsehood. He says they are no longer living like Gentiles. Now, put away in verse 25 is actually, it comes from the same term that we discovered in verse 22, if you would look there with me, which is translated as put off. Verse 22 says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. In verse 25, we see the same Greek word translated just a little bit differently. Therefore, having put away falsehood. Here's what it means. It means to to stop being in a particular state or condition. And the state or condition that Paul refers to here is the condition or the state of falsehood. Paul says that the Ephesian believers have, have now made a point in time decision. They have resolved in their minds to to put away anything and everything that is associated or affiliated with the city of man. My question this morning is, could the Apostle Paul say the same thing about you? Have you have you? Put away what belongs to the city of man. Or do you say, but pastor, you don't understand. That's just the way I am. Pastor, you don't understand. That's the way I was raised. That's the way I I was taught from a child. I have learned to behave in these ways. Or can you say, I have once and for all put away what belongs to the city of man. Additionally, can you say this morning, or could Paul say of you in your life, have you put away falsehood? Are you prepared to hear how God expects his people to live now that they and now that you, if you're a follower of Jesus, reside in a totally different set of circumstances? We have moved from the city of man, depraved mind, depraved heart, depraved affections. We have moved, or should I say, Jesus has moved us into the realm of the city of God where now we have the ability to obey God. We have the ability to love God. We have the ability to worship God. We have the ability to please God and serve God. And more than that, we have the desire to do all those things, whereas formerly in the city of man, we couldn't care less about those things. We had no desire. We had no ability. We were dead in trespasses and sin. Will you join me as we pray, as we labor over this verse together? Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to open the word of God. We thank you that you have have revealed in very specific ways how we as the people of God ought to live in the city of God. Lord, we 
are face to face with a with a vital topic this morning. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would stir up some hearts. God, I pray that you would stir up some minds that that wills would be motivated and activated today as a result of the time that we have laboring over Ephesians chapter 4, most notably this verse, verse 25. And so, God, may, may we move forward with great confidence, knowing that your spirit will do a mighty work today. We trust you to do this and give you the glory in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of the message this morning is Our New Life in the City of God, Committed to the Truth. As I've already indicated, Paul says that the, the believers in Ephesus, as well as you, if you're a Christ follower, that you have learned this lesson. You have put away falsehood. And on the basis of, of putting away this falsehood, he now brings a series of imperatives that will give both the Ephesian believers and every Christ follower here this morning a practical set of guidelines. Ways that we can put on the new self. He shows the Ephesian believers and every Christ follower today what our lives should look like as we walk around in the city of God. Exactly what does this look like? We will see that God is calling us to live lives that are countercultural. We are going to live lives that when the world looks at us, they say, What in the world is going on with that person? Why does Edith act like that? Why does Betsy act like that? Those two women are different than other women I see in this community. Why does Kyle act like that? Why does Joe act like that? Why does Paul act like that? Why does Jennifer act like that? Something is different about these people. Something is different about these families. God not only expects us to be counter countercultural, but some might consider it counterintuitive. Our commitment to the things of God from the perspective of the world is, is totally counterintuitive. In other words, God calls us to live lives that are totally distinct. He calls us to live in such a way that He alone receives the praise and the honor and the glory. Now, if I could indulge you just for a few minutes, I'd like to have some fun with you. Before we look at the first imperative, I, I want to tell you something that may shock you initially. If you would take your two eyes and focus intently on verse 25 in Ephesians chapter 4, I want you to look and see how far we have to go until we reach the finish line. Can anyone gather how many verses we have left? We've got eight verses. Am I counting correctly? So this is where it might shock you a little bit. And I, I, I went back and forth. Should I tell him? Should I not tell him? Should I tell him? Should I not tell him? Jason already knows, and he's smiling. We are going to, over the next six weeks, beginning today, complete our journey in Ephesians chapter 4. And my rationale is very simple. And this is where I want to have some fun with you. One of my favorite places to go in Seattle Number one is Safeco Field. Let's just get that out of the way. But one of my other favorite places to go is the Pike Place Market. Do we have any Pike Place Market fans here? I mean, if you go to Seattle, you have to go to Pike's Place Market. I'm curious. Raise your hand if you've never been. There, there are some. There are some that have never been to Pike Place Market. Now, I want you to imagine with me that, that we have some, some guests coming from out of town. 
Even, even better than that, we have some guests visiting from out of the country. Let's say they, they live in Eastern Europe. I have friends in Eastern Europe. And let's say that we are trying to sell them on the idea of going to Pike's Place Market. Now, there are two approaches that I might take with my friend that will be arriving shortly. The first approach that we will call option number one goes something like this. Hey, you need to come with us to Pike Place Market. It's a really cool place. They sell stuff. And along with you, my friend would probably laugh. Oh, they sell stuff. Why don't we just go to the Everson Market? No, no, no. You don't understand. We need to go to the Pike Place Market. We'll show option number one. It's a great place. They sell stuff. Whoop-de-doo, right? Shall we move to option number two? And I, I would submit to you, I think you'll be much more interested, along with my friend, in option number two. If you really want someone to understand the, the, really the heart and the soul of Pike Place Market, would you agree with me that you have to get into the, the details? You have to tell them more than just they sell stuff, but they sell produce. And it's more than just your average produce. You're going to see colors you've never seen before. You're going to see vegetables you've never seen before. You're going to see fruit you've never seen before. You're going to see grapefruit. You didn't think grapefruit got that big. You might need a wagon to take a few grapefruit home with you. It is an amazing place. And then let me tell you about the guy that throws the fish. He throws the fish. Yeah, he throws the fish. Why does he throw the fish? Because he can. It's amazing. You say, I want that one. And the guy with a really gruff voice, you know the guy I'm talking about? He says, yeah, we got a fish job. I throw it all up. Right? And it goes like, I mean, it's a good thing I'm bald, right? Because if I had hair, it would have hit my hair. Goes right up. You say, it's an amazing place. How, do you want to go to Pike Place Market? I bet many of you do now. Then you have to take your friend to the magic shop. It's the best shop in Pike, Pike's Place Market. They have all kinds of stuff there. You can ask the magician to do tricks for you there. You can buy a trick. It's an amazing place. Oh, and then there's the bookstore. They have some used books. They have some new books. It's wild. And by the way, did I tell you about the jalapeno jam? Jalapeno jam? That sounds like something Chris Feldman would like. <laughs> I tried a sample of the jalapeno jam at Pike Place Market, and my mouth was on fire for the next three days. It was amazing. It was amazing. You have to go to Pike Place Market. Now, how many of you would be more apt to go outside of the jalapeno jam, comment, if you heard the second piece of rationale? Would you be more interested in that? That is precisely the rationale that we're taking as we approach Ephesians chapter 4 verses, verses 25 to 32. Is we want to do more than a thumbnail sketch. We want you to see the, the details about Ephesians chapter 4. We want you to see the passion of the Apostle Paul. We want you to see how he is, is excited about these imperatives he's going to set forth for the people who live in the city of God. Now, the first imperative for the Ephesian believers and every Christ follower today is this, is we must, we must be committed to truth. We must be committed to truth. We read it once again with me. Therefore... And whenever we 
come across the word therefore in the English text, we ask this question, what is it therefore? It's on the basis of what we've already learned about living the new life in the city of God. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. It was the Danish philosopher Zorin Kierkegaard who uttered these words. He said, I need to understand my purpose in life to see what God wants me to do. And this means that I must find a truth which is true for me, that I must find the idea for which I can live and die. Now, before you begin to cast relativistic stones at Zorin Kierkegaard, please understand, as one writer says, he took the idea of truth as true for him to mean what engaged him at the deepest levels of his heart, not in the sense that he could customize truth to fit his whims, like most Americans do today. That idea, notice capital I, that idea, Kierkegaard said, for which I can live and die. Now, it seems to me that the brooding Dane... Zoran Kierkegaard has put his finger on the inner pulse, on the inner yearnings of people who are created in the Imago Dei, for people created in the image of God. But if we are to be a people committed to truth, we must first wrestle with the meaning of truth. I want to pose this question, what exactly does it mean? If we have any hope of being a people committed to the truth, we must first We must first believe that truth is objective and absolute. We must first believe that truth is objective and absolute. It's been been many, many years ago that Alan Bloom wrote his book, The Closing of the American Mind. And at the beginning of the book, he says something that I remember reading over 25 years ago, and it, 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 it gave me the shivers to read it. At that time, now our situation is even more grave. He says this, quote, There is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university, listen, over 25 years ago, almost every student entering the university believes or says he believes that truth is relative. Close quote. What Bloom suggests is that a vast majority of high school students entering the university says this, there are no absolutes. There there are no transcendent, unchanging truths. Some of you have heard me tell the story about one of my heroes, Francis Schaeffer, who was discussing with a man who believed this model of truth, uh, that truth is relative. And as, as only Schaefer could do, you know, had his knickers and his goatee. He was just a cool-looking guy, right? As only he could do, he, he got up and he wandered over to the stove as this Indian man was discussing his, his relative theory of truth. There are no transcendent truths. There is no absolute truth. And Schaefer went over to, over to the stove. And on that stove, he had a pot of boiling water. And he wandered back gingerly, only Schaefer can walk gingerly, right? He walked gingerly back to the man, and he held the boiling pot of water over the Indian man's head. 
as if he was going to pour this boiling, scalding water on his head. And the Indian man said, my dear, what are you doing? And Schaefer said, I'm going to pour the scalding water on your head. And he says, well, why on earth would you do that? He said, sir, you just told me that there is no absolute truth. And so it, it, it is of little consequence if I pour the scalding water on your head. I'll never forget reading these words. The man got up and walked out of the house and Schaefer never saw him again. Why? Because he, he realized the futility, the absurdity of his worldview that said there were no absolute truths. Please remember that a person who believes that truth is relative rejects the idea that truth is transcendent, universal, and unchanging. As one writer says, that relativism is the philosophy that denies absolutes. Relativism claims that all things are relative. Now, we don't have time to look at the, the finer points of relativism this morning, but understand this. That the very notion of relativism is self-refuting. Why? The moment any person denies all absolutes, they contradict the very thing they wish to assert. I'll let you to think about that on your own. The consequences, you must understand, of relativism are serious indeed. It was R.C. Sproul who once said, If truth is relative, then the truth of God is not truth, but a lie. For the Word of God contends that there is a truth, a truth with a capital T, that transcends the universe. A truth with a capital T that is the norm and the foundation of all truth. To sum up R.C.'s comments, he says this, If there is no such thing as absolute truth, then God is a liar. And if God is a liar, God is unworthy of our worship. And if he is unworthy of our worship, he is unworthy to be called God at all. When we embrace absolute truth, when we come to the place where we believe that there is a, a set of absolute truth standards that God has ordained, we are in a position to move forward in obedience as Christians. Instead of practicing falsehood, we are called now to speak the truth. That's the second thing I want to propose. That is that we are called to speak the truth. Look again at verse 25. Paul says, speak the truth with his neighbor. The word speak is a word that, that is translated, obviously, to speak, but it means a commitment to speaking truth to whom? To everyone. It is a commitment to speak truth to everyone. And the definition of truth, you, you will wander around in the marketplace of ideas, and for the students heading off to the university, I, I, I want to challenge you all. It's Brenna, your second year, and Kirk, and Kyle, and Maria, and Kylie, going off to the university, even a Christian university. Your first question, class number one, Professor, what is truth? What is truth? Truth is a very important concept. It means this. It means that the facts line up with reality. Now, that probably doesn't give you the warm fuzzies. I kind of get the warm fuzzies when I hear that definition. That facts line up with reality. Let me illustrate. When, when students in the first couple of rows, when you score a C- minus on your exam, and you walk home gingerly, You open the door and your mom says, how'd you do on the test? Oh, man, got a 91%. 
That does not line up with reality. That's what they call in the old days a lie. Right? It doesn't line up with reality. When you catch an eight-inch trout... Do I need to even finish this story? (laughs) When you catch an eight-inch trout and you tell all your fishing buddies that it was four pounds... That statement does not line up reality with reality. In the old days, they would call that story, don't say a fish story. That's called a lie. When you earn $3,000 a year in tips where you work, but you fail to report it on your income tax, there's, there's a word for that. It comes from the old school. It's called a lie. You say, but wait a minute, I didn't say anything. That's the point. You didn't report it. Therefore, you are practicing falsehood. When you slip onto the ski slopes without paying for your lift ticket, there's something they call that in the old days. It's called stealing. And really, it's a lie because you pretend like you paid to get on the slopes. I remember when I was a senior in high school, the youth group went snowboarding, or not snowboarding, but uh, inner tubing. They didn't have snowboarding in those days. It was black in the back, black and white days, right? We had inner tubing and skiing on two skis. And I remember a buddy of mine came up to me and I said, Hey, you having a good time? Yeah, I'm having a great time. I said, What have you been doing? Oh, I've been skiing. I said, I didn't think that you were going to ski. I thought you were going to. He said, Oh, he goes, I, I just snuck on. I said, You're a thief. He said, no, I'm not a thief. He goes, they make, see if you can sense the rest. They, they, they make so much money. And just for one person to sneak on, it's not that big of a deal. And I said, you're a thief and you're a liar. And here's what we talked about in our Veritas class this morning. Oh, you're a legalist. No, no, no. I'm not a legalist. You're a thief and you're a liar. That's how they did it in the old days. In each of these instances, you either tell a lie or you live a lie since your words or your actions are not in line with reality. You're not being a person of truth. And so Paul the Apostle here in verse 25, he says that speaking the truth should be a normal part of our Christian lives. When he says speak the truth, he writes in the present tense, which means... This is a habit for us, is every day we wake up and we resolve, we will tell the truth. Also, speaking the truth is a comprehensive command. Notice that the command is given to whom? To each one of you. It's not given to the Christian do-gooders. It's not given to the progressives. It's not given to the, the conservatives. It's given to all of you. Put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth. You see, there are no escape hatches here. There are no exception clauses. Your title does not give you license to tell lies. You say, what are you talking about? Because you have doctor before your name, or because you have pastor before your name, or because you have uh, the president of a corporation before your name, does not give you license to tell a lie or live a lie. Each citizen who resides in the city of God has a solemn obligation and responsibility to speak the truth. In this context, Paul stresses the importance of speaking truth most specifically with your neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. 
But the principle of truth-telling goes, goes far more than merely speaking the truth to your neighbor or far greater than speaking the truth in the household of faith. The principle of truth-telling would apply to literally every single person you come in contact with. That is, we speak the truth to our church family. We speak the truth to our immediate family. We speak the truth to our friends. We speak the truth to our enemies. We speak the truth to everyone we come in contact with. Number three, what does it mean? It means that we are called to live lives of truth. How does that flesh out in the real world? It means that we are in the habit of writing truth It means we are in the habit, if you're a blogger, of blogging truth, of reporting and accurately testifying to the truth. Last week, some of you know that I got called in for jury duty. And I called on last Sunday evening to get my assignment, and they the message said that you're number 524, so you're off the hook. I called on Monday afternoon, the next day, and I called, and they said, if you didn't have to come in on Sunday, you don't have to come in on Monday. And I said, praise the Lord. Right? Because I have too much to do. Had I been called to serve as a juror, one of the important responsibilities that I would have had along with the other 11 men and women is to tell the truth about everything. To tell the truth about everything. And so we write truth, we report and testify to the truth, we live consistently, and we live with integrity. I want to show you a a picture this morning of a man that you may or may not recognize, but this is a, a picture of an individual that when he was 24 years of age, Abraham Lincoln served as the postmaster of Salem, Illinois, for which he was paid, you ready for this, an annual salary of $55.70. Like, he was rolling in the dough. Even then, years before he entered the White House, the the rail splitter was showing the character that earned him the title of Honest Abe. The New Salem Post Office was closed in 1836, but it was several years before an agent arrived from Washington to settle accounts with ex-postmaster Abraham Lincoln, who was a struggling lawyer and not doing well financially. The agent informed Mr. Lincoln that there was $17 due to the federal government. Can you imagine? You make less than $55 a year, and basically an IRS agent shows up at your office and says, Hey, Slim, you owe 17 bones. Lincoln crossed the room, opened an old trunk, and took out a yellow cotton rag bound with a string. Untying it, he spread the cloth, and there within the cloth was an exact $17. He'd been holding it untouched for all those years. And here's what Lincoln said. He said, I never use any man's money but my own. See, Abraham Lincoln was an example of what it means to cast aside falsehood and be a truth teller. A truth teller. Secondly, I want you to see another question I want to wrestle with. Why is it so important? Why is being committed to the truth so important? I had a a very interesting conversation a few days ago with a leader in our community. And this leader in our community made a, a, a very important statement that impressed me a great deal. He said this. He said, Dave, I can put up with an awful lot. 
I can put up with what people do and how they behave. But he said, "There." it's like he was pointing his finger at me, but he wasn't. He said, there is one thing I will not tolerate. I will not tolerate lying. And so why is commitment to the truth so important? Please understand that God places a commitment on the truth, first and foremost, because he is truth. Wayne Grudem says God's truthfulness means that he is the true God and that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standards of truth. The fact that God is truth flies in the face of anyone who would deny the possibility of absolute truth. Please remember that God always tells the truth. Some of you may have had the same Sunday school teacher I had in second grade. And I can't remember my Sunday school teacher's name, but I remember vividly my Sunday school teacher saying this, God can do... Curious if anyone had the same teacher. God can do... Oh, we have the same teacher. God can do anything. Do you know that's not true? There's one thing he can't do. Lie. He can't lie. And that's exactly the point. God can't lie. First Samuel fifteen twenty nine says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. I talked to a man one time who said, Well, God could lie, but he chooses not to. And I said, I beg your pardon? God could lie, but he chooses not to. It is not within the nature of the triune God to lie. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope and eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. You see, it's not in the character of our God to lie. It's impossible. Secondly, know that truth is a reflection of what God represents And who God is. And so when we are in the practice of telling the truth, we accurately reflect what our God is like. Conversely, when we cover up the truth or when we lie, we misrepresent God and we heap a great insult on the great worthiness of his name. And so I want to challenge you the next time that you are are faced with the decision, do I lie or do I tell the truth? Most of us are wired in this way. If I lie, I might get in trouble. And that is true. If you lie, you may get in trouble. If you get caught, you will get in trouble. But think even greater. Think deeper with me. If I lie, I misrepresent the character of a holy God. If I lie to my mom and dad... If I lie to my teacher, if I lie to the government, if I lie to the police officer, if I lie to my friend, if I lie to my spouse, if I lie to my neighbor, I tell them this, God is a liar! Isn't that right? When I lie, I tell the world that God is not who he claims to be. Finally, and most practically, how do we obey 
For those of us who realize that we need to put away falsehood and come to the place where we're committed to truth, how do we do it? Number one, admit that truth starts right here in the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Psalm chapter 51, verse 6, David says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inner being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. I like how the Christian Standard Bible translates this little phrase, Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. And so we make this confession. We admit that truth begins in the heart. Number two, we acknowledge what God thinks about deception. Have you noticed how even in the Christian world, we've become accustomed to kind of kind of soft-pedaling the way God thinks about things, whitewashing the way that God thinks about things? We need to see what the Scripture says. Psalm 5.9 says, There is no truth in their mouth that their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Psalm 34.13, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. It gets better. Psalm, or Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, There are six things the Lord hates. You do know the Lord hates some things. Here the Bible says there are six things he hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And then he lists them. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. Just to begin that list. God hates with a holy passion a lying tongue. Proverbs 10.31, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. Now, I have a little bit of a, an imagination. The perverse tongue will be snip. Are you with me? Will be cut off. That's what God thinks of lying. Number three, accept your responsibility to be a person who is committed to the truth. This morning in our Veritas class, in the membership class, we had a a lively discussion about the controversy that has been inflamed over the matter of imperatives and indicatives. There are some today who say that there are no imperatives in the New Testament. Well, I see one imperative in the very first verse that we looked at, that we are called to put away falsehood and also we are to speak the truth. Kevin DeYoung says, among conservative Christians, there is sometimes the mistaken notion that if we are truly gospel-centered, we won't talk about rules and imperatives or moral exertion. That would be a bad thing. We are so eager, DeYoung says, to not confuse indicatives, facts or what God has done, and imperatives, what we should do, that we get leery of letting biblical commands lead uncomfortably to conviction of sin. That's exactly what we want to accomplish today, is if you're here and you're, you're struggling with the sin of lying, that the Word of God this morning would, would lay you bare, that it would show you that your lying days are over, and that it is only by grace, that it is only by grace that God will enable you to be the kind of man or woman or boy or girl that you need to be. And that you would be committed to truth. As we close, may I be honest with you. May I tell you the truth. 
I believe that in the church these days, that Christians have slowly, year after year after year, they have grown accustomed to, to lying with impunity. That is, our lives, our worldviews have eroded so much that we actually believe that we can tell a lie and get away with it. I believe that is the vast overriding worldview, not only in the pagan culture, but I also see it in the church. It's with young people, it's with middle-aged people, and it's with seniors. We have grown accustomed to lying with impunity. We believe that we can do such a thing and never get caught. We believe that there will be no consequences, there will be no accountability. And commentator Kent Hughes addresses this matter. He said that Paul regarded lying as a dominant characteristic of the old life. I've thought about that statement over the last few days. Think about that. We explored the city of man who is dominated by a pagan worldview, a depraved mind, depraved affections, and depraved wills. And Hughes kind of summarizes this for us. He says that the, that the dominant weakness, the dominant characteristic of people living in the city of man is that they struggle with lying. He goes on. Paul's message left no room for equivocation. There is, and I want you to hear these words very plain, there is no room for lying in the church. And so in one sentence, verse 25, Ephesians 4, Paul the Apostle blows this worldview to smithereens. The worldview that says, I can lie and get away with it. He says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. Paul's passion for the truth, as you know, is is taught throughout the word of God. Proverbs 14 says, a faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. He said in Colossians 3, do not lie to one another, or better translated, stop lying to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And so here's what you'll discover. When, when we as God's people, we as residents of the city of God, when we make a commitment to the truth, When we take this imperative seriously to speak truth to our neighbors, we will notice that our our lips, which are governed by our love for God, and our hands and our feet, which are governed by our love for God, will do great things for the glory of God. As the psalmist says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. And so, my friends, God calls us to to be a people who are committed to proclaiming the truth. And I can tell you firsthand that sometimes when you proclaim the truth, not everyone likes it. We should have a morning where I just share some emails. Wouldn't that be fun? But that wouldn't be called a sermon, so we're not going to do that. We are called to be a people who proclaim the truth. We are called to be a people who love the truth. 
We are called to be a people who learn the truth. We are called to be a people who listen to the truth. We are called, as Paul says in verse 25, to be a people who speak the truth. Now this morning, some of you are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But some of you are still living in the city of man. You're still an unbeliever. I want to ask you this morning, are you ready to take the next step to be rightly related to God who is the truth? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ? He was the one who who paved the way to heaven when he died on the cross for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. Do you stand on the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in the only one who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, and who is the way, the truth, and the life? This morning, I urge you, I plead with you. You know, one of the the features of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's ministry was this. He would plead with sinners. He would practically beg sinners, come to the cross. All you who struggle with lying, come to the cross. It was Samuel Bolton, the old Puritan writer, who said this, wound the sinners with the law. And once they have been sufficiently wounded by the law, then pour on the balm of gospel grace. If you're not a believer this morning, know this, that you are under the the white hot wrath of God right now. That the Bible says that you are practicing lies. That you're, you're, you're living a life that is, that is loaded with lies. But the scripture doesn't leave you there. As Spurgeon would admonish the people who came to his church in London, he would say, look to the cross. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Saved from your past sins, saved from your present sins, saved from every sin that you will ever commit. And when you die, you will spend eternity with the triune God for all eternity. May we as the people of God make a commitment today to be committed to the truth. Let's pray. Lord, I've never ceased to be amazed by the the power that we find packed in your word. Here in in one short verse, we, we find so much that we can be challenged by. We are challenged to, to cast aside falsehood. We are challenged and admonished to be a people of the truth, to speak the truth to our neighbors. And so, Lord, I pray for Christ followers today that today would be a a new day, perhaps, in in our our journey as Christians. That if we struggle in this area, that we would say, God, I do struggle. I do struggle with lying. I do struggle with being deceptive. I do struggle with shading the truth. I do struggle with, with hiding the truth. Sometimes I don't accurately report my income. Sometimes I'm not a very truthful person. And so today I realize that the imperative is staring me in the face. I am called to be a person of the truth. And I realize, God, that I can't do it on my own. It is only your grace that will enable me to obey this very important command. And then you receive the glory. You receive the honor as I, as I live in a way that you call me to live in the city of God. If you're here and you're not a believer and you've been cut to the quick and realize that that you are, in fact, living a lie, 
that you would even in your most honest, transparent of days admit, I am a liar. That you would come to the foot of the cross and you would ask the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior, to be your Lord, to forgive you of all your sins and that you turn from your sins. You repent. You believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. God, I pray that you would be merciful not only to Christ's fellowship, you would be merciful to the church in America. So many churches that struggle in this area. May you give us grace. May repentance be fresh. And may you freshly bless your church who desires to be committed to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.